Some of you are new with us. Some of you, maybe your first time, or you maybe missed a couple of weeks, didn't catch the podcast. Let me catch you up to where we are in the story in the book of Ruth before we read chapter 4 together. So back in chapter 1, we were introduced to this lady named Naomi who was married to a man named Elimelech, uh, and they decided on, on the, in the midst of a famine that had struck the land of Israel, particularly the area around Bethlehem, they were going to flee Bethlehem and go to Moab. They were going to leave the promised land and go to a pagan land, and they were going to set up shop there and sojourn there until the famine had lifted and maybe they would come back home, maybe they wouldn't. However, the thing they fled from in Bethlehem, impending death because there was a lack of food, they find waiting for them in Moab as Elimelech, not long after they make the trip, finds himself to be ill and dies. Elimelech dies and Naomi buries her husband there in a foreign land, in the land of Moab. Then her two sons, they marry Moabite women, which was, by the way, was forbidden in God's law. Um, But they take Moabite women as their wives. Uh, About a decade into their time there in Moab, her two sons die, Malon and Kilion. She buries both of them in a foreign land. And then she hears by God's grace that he had visited uh, his people in Bethlehem, that the famine had lifted, and so she would set out to return. Uh, she tries to persuade her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, to return to their father's house uh, so they could find some rest, they could find security, they could find some normalcy, find a husband, have family. Go back, my daughters. One of them does, and the other one chooses to go with Ruth and clings to her because she had clung to, Na- or clings to Naomi because she had clung to Naomi's God. Uh, she says, your God is my God. Your people will be my people. I want to be in the presence of God. I want to be with the people of God. And so she returns with Naomi back to Bethlehem. Now, when Naomi and Ruth roll up into Bethlehem, the ladies of the town are all like, they do what the ladies of the town do, right? They're all excited and talking about, is this, is this Naomi? She's back, right? And so they greet her and they say, it's so good to see you. And she says, don't, don't hold up, right? Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Naomi meant pleasant, Mara means bitter, because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. And all the things that I left with, I left full, and God has brought me back empty. So don't call me Naomi any longer, call me Mara. Now they come back at the beginning of the barley harvest, which means the fields are ripe into the grain, they're about to put the stalks to the sheaves and be able to cut it down and bring it into the harvest. And so that closes the end of Ruth chapter one. In chapter two, Ruth and Naomi have a problem, right? They have no food and they have no family. And so they have no present provision and no long-term hope. And so Ruth determines in order to meet present provision, she was going to take advantage of a provision God had made in his law called gleaning. Now gleaning in the Old Testament was a provision God had made where the, the owners of the field should not reap to the edges of the field, to the corners of the field, but they left the margins of the field for the marginalized, for the poor, for the orphan, for the widow, for the sojourner. And so they could come out and they could gather up stalks of grain to have food to put on their tables. So Ruth determined she's going to go out to glean and look for a field in whose eyes she might find, of a man whose field she might find favor. And so she happens in Ruth chapter 2 upon the field belonging to Boaz, who happens to be one of Elimelech's clansmen, right? He was a part of Elimelech's clan, part of his family. And the Bible says he was a worthy man in Ruth chapter 2. And he just so happens, as she arrives seeking to glean, he so happens to come down from Bethlehem as well. And he's there. He meets her. He shows her gracious provision in the field, not only allowing her to gather and glean from the edges and the margins of the field, but also from all the grain that had already been bundled up. 
Go ahead and take some, my daughter. He provides for her. He protects her. He blesses her. He's kind towards her. He invites her to his table along with all of the other servants who have been working the field, and he feeds her. He serves her. He didn't say, hey, come and pick up the plate and serve me. He says, here, let me serve you. and gives her some roasted grain. He says, when the young men go draw water, you drink from the water they drew. You don't have to go draw water for them, but you get to drink from the water they've drawn. Right? He, tells, he tells his young men, don't touch her, don't accost her, don't abuse her, don't harass her whatsoever. He pr- provides and protects her. And then he sends her home, not only with the grain that she had gleaned that day, which was about 22 liters, think of 22 one liter bottles, right? About 30 to 50 pounds of grain, right? That's how you know Ruth did CrossFit, all right? She was, she was a beast, all right? So she carries all this grain back to the house, and not only that, but she has a doggy bag full of leftovers from dinner and she gets home and Naomi is just astonished at this abundant provision. And she says, where, where did you glean, my daughter? And whose food took notice of you? In whose fields did you work? And she says, ah, some guy named Boaz. And Naomi's eyes light up, right? And you can almost see the smile return to her face. Do you not know, my daughter, he's one of our redeemers. Stay close to him. Don't go to another field. Stay near him, lest you be abused somewhere else. And Ruth chapter two closes with this statement that she gleaned in the fields of Boaz until the end of the barley and the wheat harvest. So for several weeks on end, she continues to go and collect grain day after day after day after day. Now, as as the harvest time comes to an end, the grain's being brought to the threshing floor, Naomi begins to get a little bit nervous because she's got wedding bells in her mind, right? Because she thinks, oh, Boaz and Ruth, they are a match made in heaven, at least in my heaven, in my mind. And so he's he's a little bit slow. He's not acting on this. He's not pursuing, like, what's going on? So Naomi says, listen, my daughter, you've been gracious to provide for me, and I have not provided for you well. I've not served you well. You've served me well. I haven't served you well. So let me serve you should I not seek rest for you and so she puts together a plan a very questionable plan but very questionable counsel and sends her down to the threshing floor all dolled up ready for a night out on the town and says when he falls asleep crawl under his sheets and wait for him to tell you what to do that's that's if you're a parent in the room like that's like you don't like where that's going right I I get it but that's it's very questionable counsel but she follows it and instead of saying but almost to the nth degree except for one thing she doesn't wait for him to tell her what to do she says when he wakes up here's what I want you to do I want you to spread your wings over me and cover me for you are one of our redeemers in other words the provision and protection that you prayed for back in chapter two I want you to be the extension and expression of by taking me into your home as your wife And Boaz is so gracious and kind to her. He protects her purity. He protects her reputation. He doesn't take advantage of her there on the threshing floor that night. He sends her back home with more food for her mother-in-law and for her until the matter can be settled. And when she gets back home, Naomi looks at Ruth and says, my daughter, just wait. He's gonna work it out today. Because there's an obstacle standing in the way of Ruth and Boaz being together and that is the presence of a nearer kinsman. And we said last week, Ruth, or Boaz was committed to doing everything above board and according to the law. And so in Ruth chapter four, we open this last act, this last scene of the story as it begins to unfold, seeing some of the tensions and themes that emerge throughout the book, finding their resolution and being tied up. And in Ruth chapter four, Ruth has gone home. She's with Naomi. And now it's the day after the threshing floor incident. And sure enough, we find Boaz taking care of business. And so in Ruth chapter four, beginning in verse one, we want to read down through verse 12 together. I invite you to follow along on the screen if you don't have a Bible in front of you. 
In Ruth chapter four, beginning in verse one, it says, now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know for there is no one besides you to redeem it and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in the former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and all that belonged to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day, then, then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman." Now, I don't know about you, but if you have a favorite television show or there's great movies that you have watched over the course of your life or perhaps great books that you have read uh, or plays that you have witnessed in the last act of a play or the last chapter of a book or the last scene of a movie or the last season perhaps of a television series, right? There's all kinds of loose ends that have to get tied up somewhere. And right, in fact, I don't know if you're like me, but I hate it. I, I hate it when a movie ends and it leaves you with like 17 questions because they didn't tie everything up at the end. They didn't resolve the tensions. They didn't bring the story to completion, right? It's like one of those books you read as a kid that was like, choose your own ending, right? It leaves your imagination to kind of work out what took place next. But that's not what takes place here in the book of Ruth as the last act opens for us because there have been themes and tensions that rose all throughout the book in chapter one, in chapter two, in chapter three, that the author of Ruth now is going to gather all those themes and tensions up and begin to tie some knots for us, begin to bring the story to completion, begin to resolve some of the tensions and begin to complete some of those themes. And so this week and the next couple, we wanna, we wanna follow those threads and those themes through the book and see how the author begins to tie them up and what it means for you and I. Does that make sense? 
And so this morning, um, let me just kind of run down what's going on here in the text, and then we're going to jump into what it means for you and I. So at Ruth chapter 4 opens, as I said before, the day after the evening at the threshing floor. And Naomi tells Ruth, listen, don't worry, my daughter, wait, for he's going to resolve things. He's going to take care of business. He's going to work it out, and he's going to do it today. And sure enough, the chapter opens with Boaz. He's left the threshing floor, but he doesn't even go home. He doesn't even go into Bethlehem. He stops at the city gates. And when he stops at the city gates, he sits down. Now, in his day, that would have meant this, right? The city gates were a place where you came to transact business. It was a place where legal discourses and decisions were had and made. It was a place where court was called. And so Boaz going to the city gates and sitting down there at the city gates was like a red flag, like a bell going off. Hey, I've got something to discuss. I've got some legal business to transact. And so as he sits down, lo and behold, the, the, the nearer kinsman, the one who's in the first position to redeem, because Boaz wasn't in the first position to redeem. He was in the second position. But this man was in the first position, Right? Now, if, if, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the custom of the Redeemer, if you weren't here last week or you didn't memorize the sermon from last week, remember the Redeemer in ancient Israel was one who could redeem property and redeem persons. If somebody became destitute or poor, they could sell themselves into indentured servitude to someone else and the Redeemer could come along and buy them back at the purchase price and release them for their freedom. But he could also redeem property. If somebody became poor and destitute before they sold themselves, they might sell their land. And the Redeemer could redeem the land and bring it back into the family, back into the clan, so that it didn't part from them because it was an allotment from God to that particular clan. And so there was these legal rights. It, was the, it, it always fell to the nearest kinsman, the nearest relative, the nearest person in the family. And Boaz wasn't the nearest, there was one nearer to him. And that man happens to walk by. That man had the right to redeem. And Boaz would not usurp his right. He had the right to redeem, but he also had the resources to redeem. So he had money, he had perhaps money that he could allocate toward purchasing the land that Boaz is gonna present to him. He had the resources to raise up family. So he had the right, he had the resources, but the question is this, is would he have the resolve to redeem? And so as, as the man sits down, Boaz is like, how could this happen, right? The guy sits down, here, here it goes, right? He gathers 10 elders of the city, right? Brings them in, they're like the, the court of his day. They're going to listen to the appeal. They're going to verify and validate the transactions and the business that was going to be conducted there that day. And in front of the elders, Boaz says, listen, hey, Naomi, you know, she came back from Moab. She's got some land that belonged to her deceased husband. She needs to sell it. And you stand in the first position. I'm in the second position. There's no one above or before you who can redeem it. But if you won't redeem it, let me know, because if you won't redeem it, I have intentions to redeem it. And the man's, the man, the, the, at this point, the nearer kinsman in his mind, like, and, 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 and it's, 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 he just, he's like, man, this is a smoking hot real estate deal. And, and here's why. Because in those days, in those days, if there was no heir to receive the property, then it would, it would if he would have bought it, if he would have redeemed it, it would have stayed in his family in perpetuity, right? Forever and ever, amen. Right, that's, it would have been in his family, and Naomi was too old to raise up an heir. She could not conceive and give birth to a child. And so he's thinking, man, this is a great deal. 
Because if I buy this land, there's no young child who's gonna be raised up to whom the land would be turned over to as their inheritance. And there is no heir in Elimelech's family. So when we hit the year of Jubilee and everything gets reset and goes back to their original owners, there's nobody for it to go back to. So it stays with me. And so he says, I will redeem it. Now, at this point, it's like Naomi's plan to connect Ruth and Boaz seems to be unraveling quickly, right? You can imagine if Ruth was sitting there, just, I, I know this is a little bit of license, but if Ruth was sitting there observing this discussion, it, like the camera, if it was a movie, would pan in on her eyes and it would like go back behind her eyes. You know what I'm talking about? And she began to flash back to all these scenes, their interactions in the field, Boaz's graciousness and kindness and provision and protection, the way that he cared for her, the way that he provided for her, the way that he treated her even that night at the threshing floor, the way that he committed himself to her, his, the man of character that he was, all these things begin to flash back as you see these scenes unfolding in, in their minds when the man says I will redeem it but then Boaz in a very what I think would be a very shrewd move right he says oh by, by the way <laughs> I, I can't believe I forgot to slide this little detail in there by the way the day that you acquire the field from Naomi you also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, in order to raise up offspring in the estate of the dead man's name so that his name should not be expunged from Israel's history. Now, the, the deal changes in this near redeemer's, this near kinsman's eyes now. Because now he's got a, he, he knew Naomi was too old, but he didn't think about Ruth being not too old. And so now he says, I can't redeem it because it might impinge on my inheritance because if I have offspring through her, he is right, he should have a rightful inheritance from me, but he would also, I would also lose the land that I'm buying today. So here's what would happen. I knew early on, this, this is the logic going on in his mind. I knew early on that I would have to take a hit financially in order to buy the land, but it would be in my line and in my family would never revert back to theirs and so it would be in perpetuity and I would openly have a return on it but now that changes the equation because not only would this offspring have that land for himself so he would buy it back and he would he would he would go out he would take a hit financially and then he would take another hit eventually down the line when the offspring grew up the young man grew up and became the heir of that property and he lost it to him but then that young man would also have a share of his inheritance as well. So he said, I can't put my inheritance at jeopardy. I will not redeem it. I will not redeem it. And so Boaz, Boaz says, listen, you all heard it, right? <laughs> He's looking around the elders of the city. You all heard what he just said. And then we had this little note there about in verse, verse seven and eight about how in those days in Israel they'd take off their shoes, right? And, and exchange shoes and stuff like that. So, so what's going on with that, right? That's a little bit strange. Even the author has to tell the audience he's writing to about that, that particular custom because even in their day they were unfamiliar with what took place back then. Right, so here's what, would, here's what would go on. If you're gonna buy a piece of land, you would take your, your sandals with the most common form of footwear in the ancient world, and so they would walk on that land, and so everywhere your feet had fallen, you owned. And so it was, it was symbolic, it was a symbolic gesture of taking off your sandal and handing it to the new owner and saying that my feet will not fall on that property any longer because it's your, you have ownership of that. 
And so there was an exchange of the sandal. And he says, your witnesses, I've acquired all that belonged to Elimelech, all that belonged to Malon, all that belonged to Kilion, and I've also acquired Ruth as a wife for this purpose, he says, to raise up offspring in the name of her deceased husband, Malon, so that Elimelech's name, his father, would not be a sponge from Israel. And then the people blessed him and praised him and blessed Ruth and praised her. Now, what do we make of all that? <laughs> two things this morning, and I'll, I'll, I, I don't have three or four, I just got two, and so we got about 20 minutes and I'm gonna hit them both, and so we're gonna get at them quick, and the first one is this. First one is this, is that what this book teaches us over and over and over again, and we see it again here in Ruth chapter four is this, is that you have to learn to see life as appointments and not accidents. We said it this way a couple of weeks ago that nothing happens to happen. The same truth emerges here again that you see life as appointments and not accidents. Look in verse one. Whenever Boaz goes and sits down and he calls court, it just so happens that the nearer kinsman walks by at that time. That's the exact same language used in chapter two whenever it says, and Boaz came down. Behold, Boaz came down from Bethlehem. Surprise, surprise. Right, Boaz shows up at the same time Ruth stumbles onto his field. Surprise, surprise, here's the Boaz sitting down calling court and needing to speak with this man and the elders and he just happens to walk by. Right, Not, that nothing happens by accident and everything happens by appointment. By appointment. Listen, oftentimes whenever you and I think of the providence of God in our lives, we said God's providence early on is this, is the knot formed between his sovereignty and goodness. You tie those things together and God is working God is governing all of life, including the big global affairs and the personal details of your life. He's governing all those things for his glory and for your good. That's God's providence. And here in the text, we all, if you come out of the text a little bit, if you think about God's providence, most of the times we think about the big movements of our lives, don't we? Think about what house are we gonna buy? What job am I gonna take? Where am I gonna go to school? What kind of vocation am I going to employ myself, be employed in? We think of those big movements of our lives. But I want you to consider something in this book is that none of the occasions in which this language shows up in this book are referring to big movements in somebody's life. Like the biggest movement you might think of here in this, in this book is when Ruth comes back with Naomi from Moab to Bethlehem. But listen, in our day, we probably wouldn't think twice about a young 20-something moving back in with a family member because they fell on hard times. And most of you are like, you're speaking my language right now, <laughs> right? We wouldn't think twice about that. So that, that happens frequently. Right? When, whenever Ruth, ha Ruth, Ruth doesn't know she's gonna stumble on, but she just goes out because she knows she's gotta eat and her mother-in-law's gotta eat. It's a daily decision to go find food. Boaz just shows up for work one day and Ruth is there, right? Boaz goes to the city gate, sits down and happens, this man happens to come by. He's going about his daily routine, his daily business and all of a sudden, boom, God plops him right there in the space that he needs to be because things do not happen by accident but by appointment. And we need to learn to see life that way. Listen, I, let me give you an illustration of, of this in, in, from my life, even just the last, the last week. On Thursday morning, 
on Thursday morning, I had, I had uh, three appointments scheduled. I had an 8.30 a.m. appointment at book club, which if you're looking for me, you can probably find me there most days. Um, 8.30 a.m. appointment scheduled at book club. I had a 9.30 appointment scheduled at book club, and then I had an uh, 11.30 lunch scheduled in Greenville. Now, the, the day before, Wednesday, the 8.30 canceled and the 9.30 canceled. I'm like, okay, man, I got a little bit of buffer room, a little margin in my morning. And so I set up shop at book club. I start studying. I start reading. I'm working a little bit on the message. And I get a text message from an old friend that says, hey, this, this, this mutual friend of ours, his wife is now in her 70s and she has been battling cancer for years and she is now in the hospital and they've moved her to ICU. They believe her body's beginning to shut down. They don't think that she has much longer. And so in the, it, I, I get a little bit of goosebumps even time I think about it because my, my morning up to that point was slammed. But now it's clear. Why? Is that an accident? I get a text message from this gentleman saying, my, his, his, our friend's wife is in the ICU, her body's shutting down. And so I've finished studying, I get to the end of a chapter, close up my books, and I thought, before I go to Greenville, I can make it to the hospital and then go to my lunch appointment. So I pack up and I go to the hospital and as I walk through the doors, up the elevator, to the second floor, into the ICU, bed one, there are doctors in there working on her at the time, so I couldn't see her, but her husband was standing out in the hall. And we embraced and, and exchanged greetings, caught up a little bit, talked about her condition, how things were going, where, where the, the doctors felt like she was, and, and all those things. And then before I left, he looked me in the eye, and, he, and, and this is somebody I've known for 10 years, and he said, and he began to get a little choked up, I began to get a little choked up, and he said, when the time comes, will you do my wife's service? And I said, I'd be honored to do anything that you would like me to do on that day when the day comes. I walked out of the hospital, got in my truck and drove to Greenville. I had an amazing lunch with one of our, our, our uh, regular tenders here at Redeemer. And as I'm walking out of that lunch, I get another phone call from the gentleman who had texted me that morning. And we're, we're talking about the, the gentleman whose wife is, is seemingly passing. And so he's like, he's just, just a stellar man of faith, just rock solid, steadfast, trust God in his timing, trust God in everything. And so he was, he was just like, it, it was like a, there was like a, even though everything was raging around him, there was like a peace within him. He said, but he said, you know what, Shannon, the crazy thing is, is that the moment before, a few moments before you walked in the hospital, I was on the phone with him. And even in the midst of all that peace, he said, the one thing, the one thing that was concerning to him is who would do his wife's service. Listen, folks. You, we've got to begin to see life as appointments and not accidents. That's God's providence. And it wasn't that I decided to move to Cleveland and go take a job somewhere. I just showed up at a hospital. And when you and I learn, begin to learn to see life as appointments and not accidents, here's what begins to happen. You begin to see that God's purposes and God's agenda as he's working things for his, good, his glory and your good and the good of others, you begin to see that God involves you in his purposes, but they are not about you. So often, so often, we have a tendency to think that God's purposes and his plans and the way he's guiding and directing is solely centered on me, but you know that we have a multitasking God? 
right? A God who's able to multitask every person, every place, every situation, every circumstance. And sometimes, oftentimes, he's guiding you to the place and position and people where you need to be, not for you, but for them. For their good in those moments. Life is not a series of accidents, but it's a series of appointments as God works out his providence. So let me ask you this question, how often, how often do you see disruptions to your schedule, cancellation of appointments, slowdowns in traffic? Mm, That's getting a little too personal. How often do you see those things as disruptions to your agenda rather than God's direction as he turns you to make an appointment? I don't know if, if, I can't speak for you, but I can speak for me. I struggle at times to see the direction. I just see them as disruptions and they cause frustration because I didn't get to what I had to get to on my to-do list today. But when you begin to see life as not a series of accidents, but a series of appointments, then those disruptions and distractions, they're not problems now to be solved, but possibilities and opportunities to be engaged in. That's one of the big threads and themes in this book. It's beautiful. Second point this morning is this. Not only do we need to see life as appointments and not accidents, but we also need to learn to be about God's name first. Be about God's name first before all other things. Listen, throughout the book, one of the things that we see is that Boaz is a stellar, shining example of godly character. As the book unfolds, in 2.1, we're told that Boaz was a worthy man. In 2.8, we're told Boaz instructs Ruth not to look anywhere else for provision. In other words, don't go anywhere else. Stay here. I will provide for you and protect you. In 2.9, Boaz secures protection for Ruth in his fields by telling his young man not to lay a hand on them. And instead of having her draw water for them to drink, she can drink from the water they have drawn. In 2.14, Boaz invites Ruth to his table and serves her roasted grain. He doesn't expect her to serve him. In 2.15, Boaz instructs his young men not only to allow her to glean but even to gather among the sheaves at the end of chapter 2 Boaz sends her home with 22 liters of grain and leftovers from the mill in chapter 3 Boaz blesses Ruth he affirms her character he commits himself to her he commits to do everything above board and according with the law he honors and respects her he protects her reputation he provides once again for Ruth and Naomi throughout the book of Ruth Boaz becomes the the, 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 the working case model of Proverbs chapter three, verses three to six, which says this, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Boaz is Proverbs three, three to six in the flesh. He's a working case model, an example of what that looks like as it conducts itself in real life applications and situations. 
Boaz is consistently in the book seen as a man who goes, what we might say, beyond the letter of the law to embrace the heart of the law and the intent of the law. And even though he wanted to be, we might say, with the lady, right? His heart belonged to the Lord before it belonged to her. That's a whole other sermon in and of itself. But listen, his heart belonged to the Lord before it belonged to her. And so he was concerned about holiness, not just expediency, about, about honoring God, not just what was convenient at the time. Because he was about God's name first. God's name first. And listen, the, 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 so, so whether he had a name or not, he was about God, and, and I want you to see something. In a book that is, is so about names, Ruth, Naomi, Elimelech, my God is king, Naomi, pleasant one. Right? You get to a chapter at the end that is so about names. In chapter four, the end, in the genealogy, 10 generations from Perez down to David. It's all about names. The naming of the child, servant. We'll see that next week. It's all about names. There's, there's a few people, there's one person in this book who doesn't have one. And I want you to notice who he is. In chapter four, when Boaz invites the nearer kinsman over, your translation probably says this. It probably says, hey, friend. It's not exactly what the Hebrew means. If you, if you translate the Hebrew in, the, the intent of the Hebrew into the English language, it's literally this. It's like, hey, Mr. So-and-so. Hey, Mr. What's-his-face. Like, hey, you. Right, come, come over. And, and, the, and so what, ha- what you see here is this contrast between Boaz, who's willing to go beyond the letter of the law, which didn't require him as a brother in the house of Malon to marry Ruth and raise up offspring to in- meet the intent or the heart of the law to provide for those who were in need and to care for them and to see that Elimelech's name wasn't expunged from Israel's history. You got Boaz who has a name and then you've got Mr. So-and-so who, who is lost to the anonymity of history. Because though he would meet the letter of the law, he wasn't willing to engage the heart of it. See, Boaz, here's the truth about Boaz, that he was concerned about honoring God's name not only by keeping the strict letter of the law, but by fulfilling the intent of the law, even if it cost him his name. He is the one at the end of the story who has a name. He is the one who at the end of the text we read this morning in verses uh, 11 and 12, the people say, may you be what? Renowned in Bethlehem and in Israel. May your name be remembered as one who act in steadfast love and faithfulness and kindness. Not, not, Not only in big demonstrations and big movements, but in the small daily ones as one who lived for God's name first before their own, for God's reputation above their own, for God's glory instead of their own. See, part of the reason the near kinsman, Mr. What's-His-Face says, now listen, I can't redeem, is because he's concerned about his name. He's concerned about his reputation. He's concerned about his inheritance. And Boaz says, I'm not concerned about my name or reputation. I'm concerned about God's name and his reputation. That is my primary focus. That is my primary concern. That is what I'm most engrossed with, and I want his glory above my own. 
That's what you have going on here in the text. And that's the reason his name goes down in history. And the other is lost to the anonymity of time. As just anonymous Mr. What's-His-Face. So let me ask you, Christian, whose name are you about in your life? Whose reputation are you seeking? Whose glory are you aiming at? Is it your own or that of another? Of this great and gracious God who has been kind and generous and steadfastly loving and loyal towards you? Whose name and reputation are you seeking? Whose name will you be about first? Will you be about God's name first in your workplace? Some of you, some of you work in places that, that are dens of darkness at times. Will you be about God's name first in your workplace, in your office, we be about God's name first. Listen, some of you, your families are dens of darkness. We be about God's name first there in your family in this holiday season. How will you converse with people around the table? How will you treat those people who are, man, just to be quite honest, they're a little bit difficult, but you're related to them, and so you go see them once a year. How will you engage in conversation with them? We be about God's name first and his reputation. Even in that moment around the holiday table, we be about God's name and his reputation. Will his name be first in your finances? You know, Jesus says that where your heart is, that your treasure will be also. And to store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. See, one of the ways to measure whose name your life is centered around first, whose reputation you're wanting to build first, is to look at your bank account statement. Is any of that money allocated toward God's kingdom work here locally and globally? Whose reputation are you building with your finances? If you get a bonus, is some of that carved out for kingdom work and not just set aside to take extravagant trips? Are you, are you aiming at God's name first in your finances, elevating his name? Are you aiming at God's name first in how you present and carry yourself? Listen, this, 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 has, this, this goes from, from how you speak to others to how you dress, right? Listen, we live in a culture where young women are encouraged to make a name for themselves by showing off as much as they possibly can. But listen, is, young ladies, are you making a, is your great aim not to make a reputation for yourself, not to make a name for yourself, but to live to honor God and his name first above all? Is, do you, are you about God's name first in your calendar and the way that you allocate your time? Right, remember, Sometimes disruptions are directions, not distractions. Are you about God's name first in your mind, in, the, in your imagination, the things that you aspire to, the things that you dream about? When you sit around and just kick, kick the can all day, 
some of you can't do that right now because you work. Um, but, but in those moments where you have space and your mind wanders, what do you dream about? In your imagination, in your affections, what are your aspirations? Are they about God's name and his glory and his fame? Are they about yours? Are you about God's name first in your choice of vocations? And where you're going to invest your time and your energy vocationally? Are you about God's name first in your willingness to, to, to lay your reputation aside and actually share the gospel for the first time with that neighbor or with that friend or with that family member? Even if they think that this whole Jesus coming to live in our place and die in our place and rise from the grave and ascend to the heavens and return once again to claim all of his own and that you cannot live uphill and reach God, but you can only live downhill from what he's done, not uphill in accordance with what you've done, and you share all that with him, and they go, you're an idiot. Right? Are you willing to put your reputation on the line to be able to step out and share the gospel because you know you're not living for your name, but for his? Are you living for his name first, church? Listen, this is one of the reasons, because we, we, we at Redeemer, we don't take God's name seriously, and so this is one of the reasons we take personal accountability and discipleship seriously. This is one of the reasons our elders pursue people in this congregation. We want to follow up with them, check in on them. How are you doing? Where are you at? We've missed seeing you. We take God's name, we want God's reputation to be held high and ours to be Secondary. This is why we would exercise things like church discipline because we believe God's name is more important than our own. Whose name is first in your life? Whose name are you seeking? Whose reputation around are you trying to build? And the crazy thing is, is what, what, this, what, what Boaz teaches us here is that for those who are willing to lose their life, just like Jesus says, they'll find it. And those who are willing to lay aside their name for his, he honors them with one. Now, you, you, if, if you're like me, which you are because you're a sinner, um, <laughs> I, I think you are. Um, that's what the Bible says anyway. So am I. Um, so often we fail to live for God's name first, don't we? So many other things creep in and they rise up and they take our affections and they take our priorities and we dream about things other than God's kingdom work and advancement and people coming to faith and God's glory. We dream about other things than that. But I want you to know as we close that Boaz, this doesn't just end with a good moralistic lesson for you to go home and now apply, but I want you to be captivated by something because Boaz is not the end of the story here because Boaz points forward to someone. He points forward to someone who would be willing to extend kindness at great cost. He points forward to someone who would live for God's, the Father's name and the Father's renown and the Father's reputation before his own. He points forward to someone who in John chapter 17 would say, would pray these things for his followers. In John chapter 17 in his high priestly prayer as Jesus petitions and intercedes before the Father. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Father, lift me up, not for my own sake or for my own name, but for yours. He lived for the glory of the Father. 
He goes on to say, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the one and only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. See, Jesus understood that in his incarnation, it wasn't about him, but it was about the glory of the Father. And I want you to know that he lived for the Father's name at every twist, at every turn, at every juncture, at every pass, at every red light, at every stop sign, at every yield or caution sign. He lived for the Father's name, for the Father's renown, for the Father's glory. And because of that one who laid his life down, he was raised up. He was raised up to demonstrate kindness to you and to me at great cost to himself. This is the one to whom Boaz points. And if you're not captivated by him, then there will be so many other things that vie for your affection and attention. And you will live to make a name for yourself. And you will see all of the distractions all of the, 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 the detours as distractions because you're not able to accomplish your agenda. If you're here this morning and you've never seen the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ, I want you to know that he is, as we said last week, he is our glorious Boaz. As Charles Spurgeon said, he is Though Jesus is the one to whom Boaz points and that if, that, if, that if you're here this morning and you've never come to a saving knowledge of him, never trusted in him, never come to treasure him above all things, I want to invite you that he stands ready and willing to receive you. And it's not by you saying, okay, I, I'm going to clean my life up and I'm going to get my act together and then I'm going to come to him. It's no, 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 no. No, that you flee to him for refuge under his wings and then he slowly begins to clean your life up. If you're here this morning, you are a Christian, I would ask you to consider this great Jesus who has paid it all for you in the same way that Boaz not only had the, 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 the right now to redeem and the resources to redeem, but he had the resolve to do it and Jesus did as well. Okay, if you want, if you want a name for yourself, then live for his name. Not for your own and see what he might do. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your kindness and goodness to us in Christ. We thank you for the way that he's redeemed us from Satan's sin and death, the way that he's accomplished victory for us at the cross that we could not accomplish for ourselves, and that you saw fit, Father, to glorify him because he lived to glorify you. And Father, I pray that as a church, we be a church that is sensitive to your direction, that we're not about our agenda, but we're about your name. And so when distractions come, we would see them as directions and not as disappointments. And that, Father, that you would use us for your glory, that both individually we would be people who are about your name first and we would be a church that is about your name first. And God, whatever you choose to do 
through this body called Redeemer and through these individual believers in, in the seats this morning, God, it will be to your praise and glory and honor and not our own. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.